Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 57. We're getting towards the end of it. It divides nicely this chapter. I'm just going to read it. It's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Let's read the first 12 verses. The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteousness is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of sorcerers, you offspring of the adulterers of the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression and offspring of falsehood? Inflaming yourself with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valley under the cliffs in the rock. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them who have poured out a drink offering, you have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and a high mountain you have set up your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice, also behind the doors of their post. You have set up their remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me, and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed, you have made a covenant with them, and you have loved their bed, where you saw their hand. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes, you sent your messengers far off, and debased yourself even to Sheol, and that's as a reference here to hell. It's one of the places referred to as hell. I guess I could stop and make a distinction here where it says that um, death and hell were emptied and then you have in Revelation 20 the great white throne judgment. As I stand here tonight, Sheol used to have two chambers, one called Abraham's bosom and the other place is hell or Sheol. Uh, Eventually, at the great white throne judgment, then after they're judged, <clears throat> they're cast into outer darkness. Now, this is what Odin experienced and what the Lord, for whatever reason, allowed him to go through that experience. Um, I have absolutely no doubt that that happened to him. Actually, I had a similar experience um, with Odin. I've known, I've known Odin for a long time. I remember uh, in the 80s, late 80s, when we had our first uh, Calvary Chapel conference here, um, I was talking with Gail Irwin. He said, we need, we need to start a, a conference here because some people can't travel all the way to Indiana, so on and so forth. And Odin went from being that um, strung out <laughs> uh, hippie on acid to getting raised up where he was the go-to guy for Pastor Chuck with CCOF. I remember talking with Odin and talking to him about that conference. So I've known him for many, many years, and I have every confidence that everything that he said is, has happened to him. So we picked it up in verse, this Sheol here, uh, different from outer darkness. Uh, you were wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor have you taken it to heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness in your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, uh, but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them, but he who puts his trust in me possesses the land and shall inherit the holy mountain. Let's just stop there. These first verses, now it's going to be divided, of showing the Lord showing his, his um, case against them, that they're offering these, that their worship on the high mountains, um, on their beds, um, killing their offspring, uh, going to the high places, and, and um, uh, talks about them worshiping them. And it says, should I, should not I be grieved with the way that you're worshiping these idols? <clears throat> Last night we were out with a 
some friends from the fellowship, Judy and I, got together with Bastia, and they wanted to take us out. And one of them was telling us at the table that he's been witnessing to his Catholic friends, and they're trying to sell their house, and it wasn't selling. <clears throat> and this guy tells his family member, he said, well, if you just dig up that statue of St. Francis that you got buried in your yard, it just might sell. <laughs> and he said, how did you know I had a statue of St. Francis buried in my house? And he said, well, because you're Catholic and you're trying to sell your house and that's what Catholics do when they try to sell their house. He says, dig it up, get rid of it, and you might have a shot at it. And he says, well, actually we got two of them buried in there. <laughs> and they had to they did it wrong, so they had to dig them up because they put them face down. They found out that was the wrong way to do it, so then they had to put it face up. And then they have to have the feet pointed towards the house. Now, some of you old Catholics here may be familiar with that custom. I had never heard it before. But he's trying to talk to them and just said, Will you just think about this for a second, what you're doing? You're talking about a, a stone image, and that's what they're talking about here. You have these stone images and you worship them, and they can't do anything. And they're, 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 they have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't talk. They have ears, but they can't hear. It's a piece of rock, okay? And the Bible says, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, Paul addresses the saints that are in Ephesus or the saints that are in Corinth. Do you realize that you're a saint and that when you became born again, you became part of of the body of Christ, and you are just as much of a saint. And um, this whole idea of becoming a saint and sainthood, Mother Teresa, having to perform and show viable evidence that there was a miracle so that she herself could be worshipped is idolatry in its highest form. And um, the Lord is calling him out in the first half of Isaiah chapter 57. He says, it grieves me. Therefore, were you, you're not grieved. Verse 10. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me? You've done all these crazy things and worshipped all these crazy gods. And um, I held my peace. The Lord was patient with them. Now, as we go to 13 to 21, it sort of changes. And... Um, Let's pick it up in verse 15. For thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, makes me think of <clears throat> Revelation uh, 5 and the four living cherubs, Zoa. They don't rest day or night, but they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. And that's what they do in, in, in the Lord's presence. And this is what we just read here, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry for the spirit would fail before me in the souls which I have made. Odin Fong is a spirit. His flesh died. He left that, this body. And whether it's the rapture or old age or whatever might get you, you, this is not you. You are in here. You are spirit and soul, and it is eternal. And you're gonna, your spirit and soul is going to spend one of, in one of two places. I don't do a funeral ever without mentioning everybody here who can hear my voice, you are going to live forever. Why? Because you have a spirit and a soul which is eternal. The question is not that you're going to live forever. The question is, where are you going to live forever? And the Bible says, once to die. There's no such thing as reincarnation. And this idea, like Odin said, you, you keep coming back as something different and your karma gets a little bit better each time and you learn your lesson and you finally get it right. Well, that's heresy. The Bible says once to die and then the judgment. One of two places. And um, he goes on to talk about his uh, compassion to those who will come to him with that broken and that contrite heart. He was laying into the Pharisees one day, and he says, you guys got one of two options with me. 
You can either fall on the rock and be broken, or someday that rock is going to fall on you and break you. And he was speaking to the, the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees when he said this. The rock is Jesus Christ. And when you come to him, you must do it with a, um, an awareness of your sin, that you're responsible for your sin, that you're sorry for your sin. And when you come to him with that, as it says in verse 15, with that spirit of a contrite heart and a humble spirit, he says, I'll never turn that sort of person away. But the high and the haughty, in this case the Pharisees, he had big issues with. Verse 16, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me, and the souls which I have made for the iniquities of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hidden was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is far off, and to say who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. He's talking about the future where the Lord eventually will have complete restoration. Uh, Romans tells us that um, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, all of Israel will be saved, and he's going to deal with Israel one more time and raise them up. And that, when we get to 59, we'll actually go to Hebrews and show those exact spirits where Uh, scriptures where there's this new covenant that the Lord will make with them. Um, Verse 20, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And yet we have just the opposite. And um, the Lord says, I'm going to give you peace, not as the world gives gives you, but I'm going to give you my peace. And he says, it's going to be a peace that passes human understanding. You can be going through the roughest trial, the most difficult of times, in the midst of a storm, and still have a perfect peace that the world just doesn't understand. Another good place for an amen. Amen. So this chapter 57, as we go through Isaiah, he's talking to the Jewish people. Uh, They've neglected him. And um, he names outright their transgressions. As we get into chapter 58, we find um, here the exposure of Israel's wicked ways. It's an explanation from God for rejecting the religious acts, God's concern for their welfare. And this chapter brings us to the final division of the prophecies of Isaiah. So starting here, the glory of Jehovah which comes through the suffering servant back in chapter 53, we move on in this section to the glory of the kingdom. So from here on out, what we're going to see is um, the Lord speaking to them um, about, about the future hope. Let's pick it up in verse 1, the blessing of true, <clears throat> true, true worship. Let's go read the first 11 verses here. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their transgression and and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation, they did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you did not take notice? In fact, the day of your fast, uh, you find pleasure and exploit all of your labors. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, and you strike with the fist of the wicked. You will not fast as you do this day, to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? 
Would you call this a fast? Now, as we get into these verses here with with fasting, um, let's go to 6 and 8, because he's going to talk about their fasting, and then we're going to do a little side trip to the New Testament. He says, is this your fast that I have chosen? Now he explains what he's looking for. They're doing it, but with all the wrong attitude. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? I want, I want to loose the bounds of, of wickedness, to undo their heavy burdens, uh, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring your house, uh, the poor who are cast out? And when you see the naked, do you cover them, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning. The healing and spring shall go forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord will be near your guard and then you shall call on the Lord and he will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the fingers and a speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness will be as noonday, and the Lord will continually guide and satisfy your soul in drought, and strengthen your bones, and you shall be a well-watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. All right, what's he talking about? He's talking about them doing their fast, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, Jesus talked about this. Let's, um, let me just quote about, let me just add um, to this fasting and tithing, and I'll just refer to um, um, the Pharisees is one Jesus had the biggest problem with because of their hypocrisy. I'm just gonna quote Matthew 23. <clears throat> this chapter is full of verbiage that is so hard on him. He calls them brood of vipers, you snakes, you hypocrites. Every other verse. But when it gets to that of tithing, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is Matthew 23, 23. You hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. In other words, they'd actually go out into their, their, um, their gardens and they would count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's for me. Number 10, Lord, that's your one. Even, even to the cumin and um, mint, the smallest things. They'd come, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, that's mine. This one's yours, Lord. And they would do that. And then the Lord says, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and mercy and faith. Now, go back to 6 of 58. He says, would you call, at verse five said, would you call this a fast, an acceptable day of the Lord? He says, when you guys fast, you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. What I really want is, um, now you can turn to Matthew chapter six. What I really want from you guys, in Matthew six, uh, picking up in verse oh, six, 16, talking about fasting. He says, moreover, when you fast, I don't want you to be like the hypocrites. And he's thinking of the Pharisees uh, who have a sad countenance for they disfigure their face that they may appear to men to be fasting. These guys, the Pharisees, when they fasted, they wanted you to know about it. And they wanted you to know, oh, I'm so weak today. Oh, I just don't have any strength. Why? Oh, I'm fasting today. That's why. I just don't have anything in me at all. And they're putting this whole thing on. Yes, they're weak. But they're doing it to be seen by men, and the Lord calls them out on it. He says, total hypocrisy, what you guys are doing. So when you fast, this is what I want you to do. Um, Assuredly, I say unto you, they have their reward. But when you fast, I want you to anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting or that you're suffering, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Back to Isaiah. It's, nothing changes. Human nature is the same. When a person is 
truly born again, they really don't look back, like Odin was saying. Uh, Some of his old friends are still waiting for him to come back. I'm not coming back. Once you've tasted the real deal, nothing else satisfies the soul, and you really don't want to make an impression outwardly to men, but you want to let your light shine at the same time, and you definitely want people to get saved. So they might come up to you and pat you on the back and say, man, you're the best worker we got in our shop. That's great. You know what's okay to say? Say, well, thank you very much. That's a nice compliment. But in the back of your head, you better be saying, praise the Lord, Lord, all the, all the glory goes to you. Um, the Lord says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Because your father who sees in secret, he's going to reward you openly someday. In 1 Corinthians 3, it tells us there's the judgment seat of Christ. It has nothing to do with your salvation. But it has everything to do with your motive of why you do what you do for the Lord. Because the Lord looks on the heart. Another good place for an amen right there. So we're all involved with works, but how are we doing it? That's the point of Isaiah here, the blessings of true worship. And we can go through the outward motions and, and all of that. And the Lord says, I'm not impressed with any of it. And he says, this is what I want. I want you to take care of the poor. And I want there to be justice. And if you see somebody that doesn't have clothes, then take them to the clothing store and buy them some. Be the good Samaritan who was always despised by, by the Jewish people. But every time Jesus talks about a Samaritan, it's always in the positive. You notice that? It was a Samaritan, not the Levite or the Pharisee. They walked around him. But it was a Samaritan that had pity on the guy, picked him up, put him on his horse, donkey, whatever, took him to the inn. He says, patch this guy up. Take care of him. i got to go to Jerusalem, but I'm coming back this way. And um, whatever he needs, you take care of it. And I'll make sure the bill is covered when I come back. And he says, which one of these, if you're to love your neighbor as yourself, did the right thing? Was it the Levite? Was it the Pharisee? Or was it the Samaritan? It was the despised Samaritan. It's interesting that when Jesus went to Samaria... He met the woman at the well. Well, guess what? She was a Samaritan. <laughs> and the very charge for the missions, where he says, look unto the harvest for they're already white, what was he looking at? He was looking at Samaria, those who really needed the Lord. So if I would sum up 58, the first 11 verses, he's talking about how, what's, what's our motive when we do things in the Lord? realizing he's watching. And, but there's also incentive with this too. He admonishes us that when we do do something good, then don't let people know about it. Because if they see, then you got your reward. But do it in such a way so that when First Corinthians 3 and the judgment seat of Christ is set up, and we're all gonna be there, and um, <laughs> I remember before Chuck passed away, um, they rented the Anaheim Convention Center. Love Song was there. Um, A lot of musicians were there. People got up honoring Chuck, and it was big big to do. He was getting ready for the last time to take Love Song on the road. I had been in church earlier that morning, and um, he was talking about Caleb. Um, Joshua and Caleb when they entering the land, and Caleb was 82 years old when he said, I want that land that Joshua, that Moses promised me when, when we were here in the first place. And I happened to be in church that morning hearing the Bible study. And um, I, couldn't, I asked Chuck afterwards when the whole thing was over, I said, Chuck, I was in church this morning and you were talking about Caleb going for it at the age of 82 were you thinking of you when you gave that message? And <laughs> He just gave me one of his Chuck grins because he was ready to, at, at the age of 82 to take this thing on the road with love song to get people that maybe had backslidden during the time from the Jesus movement days. But my point is this. When Chuck finally did come, nobody would sit down. I mean, everybody's standing up, standing, and they wouldn't stop. And Chuck is really... 
He finally said, sit down. (laughs) Just like that. He said, do you realize what you just did? He just said, I was in roll 17 in heaven. You just moved me back all the way to roll 57. Because they were honoring him and he just didn't want any part of it. And he says, what the Lord has done, the Lord has done. And of course, it was tongue in cheek and we were having a good time with it all. But as we look at, at 58, it's really the motive, what's in our heart, and why we do what we do, what keeps, keeps us going. And um, it's always, you know, the Bible says that we're to esteem the person that you're sitting next to higher than yourself. And you're to love your neighbor, what does it say? Come on, you know it. Love your neighbor as what? What does that mean? That means you love yourself quite a bit. (laughs) And you're to love them that much and to esteem them higher than yourself. That's true Christianity. Um, by demonstrating that love. They were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. Before they got the label Christian, they were called the way. But they began to call them Christians because they acted like Jesus. And Jesus only went around doing good things. Pilate couldn't find an accusation for any judgment against this man. I find no fault in him. I've talked to him three times. And there is no fault in this man. And so he was um, without fault, of course. The rest of the chapter, picking up in verse 12 now, is going to deal with um, the Sabbath and how it pertained to Israel. So he says in verse 12, Those from among you uh, shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. And you shall called the repair of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with with the heritage of Jacob, your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here he talks about the Sabbath and then the the importance of it. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath and doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, um, he's, he's calling them to that place that was meant for, for the Jews to honor that and keep that. But I want to fast forward a little bit. And I, want to, I want to go to the New Testament as Jesus talks about the Sabbath and how it pertains. You need to turn to Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses... Um, Mark chapter 2. Get my verses straight here. 28, okay, let's pick it up in verse 23. Here's Jesus' teaching in the New Testament as it pertains to the Sabbath. He says in verse 23, Now it happened as they went through the, the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look what they do. It's not lawful for them to do that on the Sabbath. But he said to them, now this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar. Now this is when he's running from Saul for his life. And Saul is after him. So he's running and he goes to the priest, the days of Abathar, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful. Showbread is something that was only for the Levites. It would be put in the, uh, the uh, tabernacle along with the, a candle of incense. The candle uh, would have been there. The, uh, um, the lampstand would have been there. But so would the showbread would have been there. And only... The Levites could eat it. 
He says, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest. And he gave some to those who were with him. So he not only gives it to David, he said, hey, you guys, haven't you ever read that when David was hungry and he had a human need, that the priest gave not only to David, but those that were with him. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. There was a time he went into um, the synagogue, and the Pharisees snuck in ahead of time, and they set this thing up, a guy that had a withered hand, like this, all withered up. And they couldn't wait for Jesus to come in. As soon as the Lord entered the Sabbath, the Lord started looking around, looked from one end to this end to this end, and he looked for the person that had the greatest need. And they knew. They knew that Jesus would go right towards that guy. And the Lord went over to him. And they were waiting for him to do what he did. And he, he touched this guy, and he healed him. And everybody said, all the Pharisees said, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And they sang the hallelujah chorus. No, they didn't. They said, you healed the guy on the Sabbath. I mean, here's this guy who's been all quivered up his whole life. The human, just natural human response would be joy and excitement. A guy that, like this, and all of a sudden, man, I can do whatever I want to with these hands. And instead, they said, it's the Sabbath day, and you just healed the guy on the Sabbath day. And basically, the Lord is saying, here, look, the Sabbath wasn't made as a rule and a law to keep, it was made for man. He's gonna labor for six days and I want him to take a day off and it's gonna be a holy day. And here the Lord clarifies and he says that the Sabbath was not made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man and not the other way around. Not another obligation that you have to try to keep. Now, I need to address Let me do a little sidetrack here. A false doctrine that is gaining momentum um, all across America. Friends that were solid, Bible-believing Christians have gotten sidetracked into what's called the Hebrews Roots Movement or Jewish Roots Movement. And bear with me as I read a paragraph. Everybody here eventually is going to run into somebody. I was talking to somebody today that ran in to uh, an old friend of mine, and um, uh, is totally into what I'm about to read to you. Once a a solid, Bible-believing Christian. The modern Hebrew-Jewish roots movement is not simply gearing our studies of the Bible to connect Christianity with the Jewish mindset to better understand Scripture and its setting. Rather, this large and growing movement insists that we must resurrect first century Judaism, our Jewish roots, and lifestyles of the first century Jews and impose them on both Jewish and non-Jewish believers. It is supposedly a movement of restoration that claims that the church has moved off its Jewish foundation and must return to a more Jewish way of life to be more authentic. Those who teach this movement insist we must keep the Torah worship on Saturdays only, and the reading of the Torah in keeping all of the law and commandments is the way of salvation. Many deny the Trinity, and there is a sense of spiritual superiority among um, adherents that they have found the only true Christianity. It has been polluted with Greek and Roman philosophy. It's not first century Christianity at all, but more resembles Uh, rabbinical traditions from later years. The truth is they are Judaizers who teach another gospel contrary to the biblical gospel of salvation. A combination of Jesus plus the law is necessary for salvation. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 15. This was the first major issue that had to be dealt with because all of a sudden, the early church, of course, was all, all Jewish. And all of a sudden, Cornelius gets saved. And he's a Gentile. And they go, holy smokes, a Gentile can get saved? 
And um, he got saved in the middle, middle of, a, of, um, of a Bible study and filled with the Holy Spirit. So we read in verse 5, um, there's this debate over Gentiles keeping the law. And this movement here that um, basically Gentiles trying to go back to keep the law, especially the Sabbath. Now, in verse 5 it says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, in other words, they were believers in Yeshua, they rose up and saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So now we have this first time where there's a debate. This is the first time it's addressed. And the leadership came together. Verse 6, so the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. And when they had much dispute, it was Peter who rose up and said to them, O men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit. I'm sure he's probably thinking of Cornelius at this time. Just as he did to us. And he made no difference or distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke, uh, a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You're laying a trip on them that you can't do yourself. And so, there was. Then he, all the multitude kept silent, and they listened to Barnabas declare how many miracles God was doing with the Gentiles. So after a long time, uh, it was James who stood up. Everybody thinks that Peter was the the head hog in Jerusalem. He was not. It was James. James was the elder. When everybody had their said their piece, it was James that got up and said, "Okay, this is what we're going to do. We've heard both sides. We have these these uh, Pharisees coming in saying you got to be circumcised, you got to keep the law, which meant the Sabbath too, and they." They, he gets up and James speaks for a while. I want to pick it up in verse 22 because he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to write a letter to, let's pick it up in verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also called uh, Barsbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they wrote the letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Sicily. Uh, greetings. Since we've heard that some who went out from among us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised, that would unsettle my soul at my age if they told me you got to be circumcised at a certain age. I would be unsettled about that. To whom we didn't give no commandment. That didn't come from us. Uh, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. These guys have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Justice and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. We're going to send a letter, but then these two guys are going to tag along and confirm that this is so. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And to us, we don't want to lay no greater burden than necessary things that you abstain from, from things offered to idols, from blood, things strangled, uh, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you do well, farewell. You want rules and regulations? I was talking to our friends from Shano. It's good to see you guys again before the study. And um, we were, somehow we got sidetracked about talking about one of the first things that go when you become a believer. Like one of the, I told them, one of the very first thing that went when I was born again is I was a pretty good swearer. I was up there with the best of them. And I was saying Jesus this and Jesus that as a non-believer. It was, came out just like, didn't think anything about it. But after I was born again, and um, I would get in the middle of a sentence and I would say, and if I wasn't happy about something, I would say, and that's all the farther I could go. 
Because once you meet the Lord, there's no way that um, you can take the names Lord in vain or, or use vulgarity to express your anger by using the F word or whatever. It just goes. And that's how, how you can tell. And, um, and that's what these last things are. There's just things when you're born again. Like the woman at the well? Well, she was in the prostitution. And she was caught in the act. And the Lord forgave her, but he didn't condone her. He said, go, you're free. But what? Don't go back to your old trade. Sin no more. And she knew she couldn't. And so what's here is just obvious things you're no longer going to do once you're born again. Good place for an amen? Amen. There's just certain, and that's what this here is all about. We've got to get back real quick to chapter 59 at least. And I'll cut to the quick with this one. <clears throat> this remarkable chapter continues God's charges against Israel, and he spells them out. Uh, their sins had brought about their sad estate. Religion had become a cover-up for their sin. God refuses to hear because of their iniquities, not because he was hard of hearing, Many people today think that God is. The sins that are referred to here, they're referred to 32 times. And there's different ways of expressing them. Many words are used. Iniquities, sins, defiled with blood, lies, vanity, mischief, spider webs, vipers, evils, wasting, destruction, and so on and forth. 32 different words to describe their iniquities. So let's go through them. Quickly, it says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is not shortened, that he can't save, nor is his ear he- heavy, that he can't hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And now we have the list. And your sins hidden um, his face from you so that you will no longer hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies. Your tongues have muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and they speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity and the acts of violence in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their path. The way of peace they have not known. And there's no justice in their ways. They've made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there's darkness, for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in a desolate place. We all groan like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions, are multiplied before you, and your sins testify against us, and our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back, righteousness stands afar off, for truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. No truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation, his head. Now this, of course, right away, 
In my margin here, I have Ephesians chapter six, and this is where it comes from. Putting on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. He puts on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and he has clad his zeal as a cloak. According to the deeds, according he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and from the glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like, the, like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Verse 20 is a prophecy. It says the Redeemer will come to Zion and those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Now this is, in my cross-reference here, Romans eleven twenty-six. Again, Romans eleven twenty-five is when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel will be saved. That's verse 26. And it's speaking about the day of redemption for Israel. The last verse, 21, is quoted twice in the New Testament. It says, As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, uh, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time forevermore. We're going to close by having um, us look at the future day of repentance. And you need to turn to Zechariah chapter 12 really quick because I'm past my time here. they haven't repented but they will repent and it's recorded for us in Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 I'm going to ask you to give me a couple more minutes because Odin stole some of my time tonight and um, but I'll be able to wrap this up here in chapter 12 verse 10 This is after Israel becomes aware that Jesus was their Messiah. And it's at this point that there's finally true repentance. Zechariah 12, verse 10. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. What was his complaint in Isaiah? You don't repent, you don't repent, you don't repent, you don't repent. There is a time when they are going to repent. And the repentance is going to be such a shock to them that it was Jesus all the time. And they will look at him whom they have pierced clearly a prophecy of of the crucifixion, and grieve for one as as your firstborn. It will be a grieving like that on the plains of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn in every family by itself. People are going to say, leave me alone. I'm in mourning and I don't want to talk to anybody. And um, the wives by themselves and the the families of the house of Levi by themselves and their wives by themselves, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Turn the page to chapter 13, verse 6. Someone will say to him in that day, where did you get those wounds in your hand? And then he will answer, well, these are the wounds which I was wounded in the house of my friend. Ooh, hurt, burn. We did that? And it's going to cause real repentance at, at that time. This last verse in verses uh, 21 is quoted twice in the New Testament. So turn to Hebrews, and this really is our last verse. But one of the things, gang, we want to do as we go through the Old Testament, I want to show you how many times it's interconnected and quoted in the New Testament. We just finished Isaiah chapter 59. And the last verse, if you're in Hebrews chapter 8, is quoted in 8 verses 7 through 13. So if you're there, it talks about this new covenant. Verse 7 says, 
of chapter 8, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then there would be no place have been sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now, here's the quote from Isaiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I'll write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them shall teach their neighbor, and none of them will say, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least unto the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to the unrighteous, and their sins and the lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, and that includes the Sabbath keepers. That's under the law. And it's now obsolete. Null and void. Now what has become obsolete is growing old and it's ready to vanish away. We have a new covenant. The guys touched on it during the conference. It's a covenant. Chris was talking about it on Sunday just about being born again. Old Nick just couldn't quite figure it out being a religious man. And I like what Chris said. He said, hey, aren't you a teacher? Aren't you a teacher of, of all, the, all of Israel? And you don't know these things? These things can only really be understood when a person has entered into the new covenant. Give me an amen. Let's stand. <laughs> Lord, we've gone through 57, 58, and 59 in Isaiah. And we see, Lord, how you tie all these things together. And that the covenants that were once in place, um, you've given us clarity tonight and how we should operate and do our good deeds before people. And when we fast, it shouldn't be letting people know about it. And when we give, we shouldn't do it in such a way that it draws attention to ourselves. So we thank you for this new covenant because we can't keep the law. As Peter said, they couldn't keep the law themselves. Why should we place it upon the Gentiles? So Lord, thank you for the Wednesday night Bible study and once again reminding us that this book is so precious and it connects the old with the new. We see the disappearance of the old covenant and the establishing of the new, and we're so grateful, Lord, that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of ourselves, lest anybody should boast. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.